Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Tim, thank you for joining us for this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Um, I am Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. Lou is president of All Metals and Forge Group, an open-die forging and seamless roll ring manufacturer. If you need those products for your industrial production and machinery, check it out at steelforge.com. Lou, you and I are going to be talking to Rosemary Coates today, who is executive director of the Reshoring Institute. Normally, we talk to Rosemary about reshoring, and she has her own show over on the WAM podcast uh, for Jacket Media Company, one of our sister podcasts. But today, we're going to be talking to her about industrial policy. The U.S., does it have one? Really, why doesn't it? Uh, and, and everything that goes into the thought process of an industrial policy for the U.S. Lou? Well, uh, I think we're going to be going into a new year where policy may become a new issue. Uh, As uh, the past couple of years, we have not really had a major policy issue on many different policies. So uh, with that, uh, Rosemary, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, as always. Great. We're, Great. Glad, we're glad to have you. Uh, Rosemary, give us a, an idea of industrial policy. Uh, you know, I, I think there's industrial policies in other countries around the world. And, and my corrector is not one in the U.S.? Yes, that, that, that's correct. And this topic is very important to me. Uh, because the the longer that I'm in the manufacturing the world, and especially from a consulting perspective, the more I can see how important it's becoming. And so the U.S. has no industrial policy. Uh, traditionally, we've believed in letting the market uh, have a free hand in our economy. And by that, I mean the government has uh, no say in winners and losers or who to support or who not to support. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, sort of anti-influence uh, by the government uh, thoughts there have been in the past um, regarding industrial policy. And so we've just let the market pretty much go its own way, and there hasn't been much much support from the government, if any. Um, a few exceptions, of course, some some investment in some technologies along the way and so forth, but no standard industrial policy. When when the government, like, for, for example, during the pandemic, when the government feels it's important we make something like uh, ventilators were made by GE, they step in with, um, with powers that are not uh, policy. So um, we can make laws and legislate and sign executive orders, but there's no nothing to guide us in terms of what to develop. So um, now I think because of the pandemic, we've exposed areas where U.S. manufacturing is is clearly at risk for some items that are essential for the American population. And so it it feels to me, and I'm, I'm kind of passionate about this, that we now need to have an industrial policy that supports critical products and critical industries in the U.S. 
Um, so in, by that I mean things like uh, medical devices, pharmaceuticals, um, on the technology side, artificial intelligence, um, you know, developing rare earth mining. These are things that that make us vulnerable unless we have our own capability in the U.S. And the way we're going to do that is through uh, the support by the U.S. government. Uh, I, I would take that one step further, uh, being that uh, we've had this uh, um, hacking attack this past uh, week, uh, which, uh, again, we don't really have a strong policy, and uh, it seems as though that our, um, our enemies of sort uh, have learned how to beat us at our own game. And the, we, we don't have a policy with regards to, a strong policy anyway, with regards to cybersecurity. Um, right. And uh, this, of course, is, uh, you know, counterfeit goods and uh, brand theft and now hacking. Um, where are you at on all of that? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, um, cybersecurity is obviously critical to to our operating going forward, and can do some some very harmful things to the U.S. economy as well as our defense mechanisms and so forth. These are areas where we we have, I think, generally backed away and let the market take care of itself. But you know, they're coming to the forefront now uh, in a way that is going to force the hand a little bit, I think, of, of, uh, of our government to, to create some policies that are going to protect us um, and support the development of industry going forward. So we already know um, the Biden administration has already published some things regarding um, industrial policy, and uh, they have stated outright that they're going to support reshoring um, and perhaps give companies that are reshoring a helping hand in terms of tax breaks and some other things. So, you know, these are these are good ideas. They're all good ideas. Um, but I still feel we need to formalize the policy. Um, you had mentioned earlier that um, other countries have one. Well, they really do. <laughs> So in, in Japan, for example, they've had a strong industrial policy since World War II um, to industrialize certain industries like automotive and heavy machinery. Um, Germany has a very strong industrial policy. And you can see, I mean, they support uh, manufacturing in Germany in a way that we don't see anywhere else in the world. I mean, manufacturing is sort of king in Germany, and, and lots of uh, – Young people coming up want to go into it um, because it is supported in a way and talked about in a very positive way. Uh, in France, they have an industrial policy that supports aerospace, uh, and uh, and so they you know are famous for building airplanes. So th these kind of policies, well, China too, of course, China has made in China 2025, which is their industrial policy supporting the development of, of advanced technology. So these countries have thoughtfully supported certain types of industries. Now, of course, the problem, as I mentioned, is that it, it forces government to pick winners and losers. So maybe not so much losers, but certainly for designating certain industries, 
uh, above and beyond other industries. So, for example, the development of pharmaceuticals uh, might be supported in a way that you wouldn't find in, in some other industries. So, um, you know, that, that can be a problem. We're, we're all about even-handedness and, and trying to give everyone a fair chance in America. And, you know, this may give certain industries an advantage. Uh, in one of the notes that I took down from uh, some of our previous conversations, you talked about uh, uh, the fact that global counterfeiting uh, on a, glo a global basis has reached over a trillion dollars. So does that mean that the policies aren't working? Uh, well, counterfeiting is kind of a parallel, yeah, parallel issue. And it's more than that. I think it's up to about $2 trillion um, should be by this year. Wow, what what a huge problem. So as you may remember, um, I do expert witness work in addition to running the Reshoring Institute. And I get involved in a lot of cases um, regarding global uh, uh, contract issues and so forth. In the last year, I've done a couple, three cases, I think, on uh, counterfeits coming in from China. Um, and counterfeiting has become this just enormous problem. And, and, you know, we're not talking about somebody's handbag or, a, you know, a watch you buy in the street from some guy. Um, we're, counterfeiting has become pervasive in every industry. So aerospace, for example, um, you know, they have a, a, some industry associations that have big anti-counterfeiting problems. So, you know, that's, that's one where every time I get on an airplane, at least back in the good old days when we got on airplanes, um, you know, I'd strap in and think, holy cow, I hope there's no counterfeits on this airplane or in the engine or in the instrumentation um, because, uh, because obviously, you know, it may not operate the same way, may not last as long, it may not be predictable um, parts in a way that you would expect from, from uh, the, the true manufacturer. So yeah, counterfeiting is a big issue too, and and we have taken some steps in the in the U.S. Um, even under the Trump administration, there was a policy regarding uh, anti-counterfeiting and and um, issues related to stopping counterfeits coming into the U.S. So yeah, I mean that's a, definitely a parallel problem, um, and one that's more akin to cybersecurity in in terms of fighting it instead of proactively promoting certain industries. It's more of a fight in that regard. This past uh, year, uh, you know, we're talking about cybersecurity. The past year, uh, which is now the fifth year in a row, that the government was going to implement and impose uh, a regulation uh, called, uh, under the uh, NIST, National Institute of Science and Technology, a requirement for you to do business with the Department of Defense, Department of uh, Energy, that you must be NIST 800-171 compliant. Uh, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that. The only problem with that is that the government, they, they created this regulation five years ago, and they said by the end of the year, December 31st, you have to be compliant if you're going to do business with the DOD or DOE. Well, they've done that now five times. And this coming next week, December 31st, 
is the anniversary, the fifth anniversary of this compliance regulation put in place, and it's not working. And I've been talking to a lot. I've been talking to a lot of NIST people and consultants and so on, and they they're they're not getting buy-in. Yeah, well, you know that's sort of yeah that's sort of akin to the made in the USA laws um, that are on the books and have been for quite some time that um, the the federal acquisition regulations require that companies or that purchases by the U.S. government um, must be for American goods unless they're not competitive. So that's kind of the way out, right? So uh, these people that are um, in federal acquisition, the, the buyers for the U.S. government, are also compelled to save money where they can. So, you, you know, think about their position there. Um, sitting at a desk somewhere, and they're told, you know, you're you're using the taxpayer money, so use it wisely, buy wisely, uh, and so they'll put something out to bid, and um, the the U.S. manufacturer bids, say, you know, a hundred thousand dollars for an item, uh, and they can get it somewhere else, maybe China or Mexico for seventy five thousand. Uh, so you know they're they're in this situation where they have a law that says you must buy made in the USA products, but if it, if they're not competitive, then you're spending the taxpayers' money, so you better get the best deal, and that's that's why uh, so many uh, uh, goods are now procured globally because they're not because the U.S. companies are not competitive. So what um, the thought process is going forward is that those made in the USA laws and regulations for buying um, U.S. goods have to take priority over spending the money. Uh, so you know, it may mean that we're going to spend more money for um, products made in the USA. Oh, uh, you know, on the other end, the opposite end, the manufacturers, um, I think need to step up and get more competitive. I mean, it's time for manufacturing in the U.S. to face the reality they need to automate, um, you know, extract as much labor as possible, and get those costs down to be competitive on the world market. Um, you know, we we have a structure where paying uh, employees can make your whole economic profile not cost competitive with foreign manufacturing. However, if you automate, you can improve productivity and very often extract costs uh, from there. So, I mean, that may not be a very welcome message to people who were on, um, you know, assembly lines that didn't require any skilled work or didn't require any upskilling um, of, of their jobs. Um, but it's the way of the future. Advanced manufacturing is what we want here in this country. We want manufacturing that pays a living wage uh, and and where it requires additional skills. So factory workers need to, uh, to upskill, uh, to be trained in a different way, to learn how to run a robot instead of doing the doing the assembly work, they uh, need to run the robot that's doing the assembly work. And that's different skill set and requires different training. To your point, uh, I, I agree with you, and uh, Tim and I have been talking with uh, robot manufacturers and software 
manufacturers uh, regarding uh, uh, advanced uh, uh, manufacturing and so on. Uh, but I, I want to go back just uh, half a step uh, about the regulations and so on about Buy American, which there's a the DFARS regulation, D-F-A-R, uh, which requires yeah. uh, American-made, which you know. However, it also allows for, um, on an equal footing, um, countries of the NATO alliance. So it's right. America plus NATO. So we right. don't have control on what's happening in Germany. I mean, if we buy from Germany for a DFARS contract, we don't know what they're doing to protect um, uh, protect the American uh, buyer because we don't know right. what their standards are. So it's kind of a uh, almost a double standard. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And to yes, and to associate with NATO, um, you know, is a way of giving some global reach to buyers so that so that we can look for specific goods that aren't available in the US or aren't competitive in the US. But then we have to think about NATO. So, you know, what is our our relationship with NATO? Are we a strong player? Do we have uh, relationships with all of the NATO countries. Um, can we trust them, as you as you just said? Um, are are their policies in alignment with ours? So so there's it's more complicated than it looks like on the surface. Uh, exactly. You know this idea of um, buying yeah you know buying goods um, that are made in the USA or ones that are. Um, that are you know made closer to home or or you know have some other attribute versus buyers who are put in a position and they're actually you know their annual reviews are based on how much money did they save you know so right. this idea is in the commercial environment too I come across this all the time I I teach um, negotiation workshops and I get buyers in there who say well you know it's all well and good to teach negotiation but the bottom line is I'm getting uh, I'm getting reviewed. You know, my boss is telling me you have to save money for the company, and you're being um, you're being reviewed based on how much money you saved, not on how strategically you thought about the buy. And until we get that straight, you know, and we start um, supporting looking at the purchasing process and from a different angle saying, you know, we're looking for value for the company or value US, buying US instead of just cost savings, we're not going to get the results we want. Uh, well, that's correct. And, and also as a result of our past administration, we first have to rebuild our relationships not only with our allies in uh, Europe, but with NATO. Uh, we've kind right. of ticked them off. And uh, so hopefully that's going to be mission one. Yeah, we're, we're in, we're in a, a definitely a disadvantaged situation around the world at the moment, I would say. Um, you know, nobody likes us very much. Um, well, maybe Putin. <laughs> That you know, most uh, most of the countries around the world are not they're not thinking of us very favorably, 
uh, right now. And there's uh, some damage control and repair that needs to be made um, going forward, whether it's with our, our allies um, in NATO and particularly the Western world, or even, you know, our what might be our competitors or adversaries like China, for example, um, you know, we we don't want to push them into doing really bad things to us, right? We want to have some kind of uh, diplomacy and arrangement so that we're respectful of one another. Even though we, we know, you know, we, we have a significant amount of problems to solve with China, uh, and they have many problems internally as well, including currency manipulation and human rights issues and, um, you know, all, all sorts of things to do with the government. But, you know, we're better off if we're talking. I like to say, you know, we want diplomacy, not lunacy. <laughs> right? So we're better off. We're better off talking to all these countries around the world and understanding their perspective than than cutting them off. Uh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Tim? Uh, Rosemary, in addition to being executive director of the Reshoring Institute and a host on the Women in Manufacturing podcast, what is known as the WAN podcast, you're also the president of Blue Silk Consulting, a global supply chain consultancy. And I'm just wondering in terms of a national policy, what is happening with the supply chain and more particularly the supply chain database at the national level? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, yes, I, I run a consulting firm. That's where I earn a living. Um, and I do global consulting for, for about 15 years. I was helping companies with uh, – basically offshoring to China um, because that's what my clients wanted me to do. And so I became sort of a, a, a Chinese manufacturing expert. Um, now I think um, for, with respect to how we manage, you know, businesses change. You can't just say, here's our, here's our law or our policy or whatever, and it's going to be good for the next 50 years because everything changes, you know, so we need to develop ideas and policies that are flexible and renewable um, to meet the business environment as it is. And I, I think I lost track of your question. Can you, <laughs> well, you ask? I'm just, yeah, I'm just wondering what's happening in terms of a national supply chain database in manufacturing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so interesting. That's a really interesting question because the government, um, you know, I think we've been exposed in terms of supply chain. So we know now um, that we we haven't done a very good job of developing things like rare earths and, and so forth. So looking at global supply chains and where our vulnerabilities are is very important at this point. I mean, we need to to know if we have another pandemic, which is very likely, where are our vulnerabilities and how do we, you know, patch those up in terms of a national database? So the reason why I think that's really interesting is because there's so much commercial software now out there that tracks supply chains worldwide. So they can track your vendors and know all about, um, you know, where your goods are. And, you know, there is actually a lot of very good supply chain software available. We just need to sign up the government for it. 
Um, so I, I think, you know, a, a couple of months ago I did a podcast on Wham with um uh with Resolink, which is a, a software company here in Silicon Valley where I live. And they are using artificial intelligence to track events around the world uh for supply chain. So um they they scan or they scrape uh, like 300 publications a day around the world to determine when there is uh you know an event and they knew the first week in January so you know at least a month before the rest of us knew uh that there was an issue with uh coronavirus in Wuhan uh and they were able to notify the people that use their software um, that if they had suppliers in that area, they ought to be looking for alternatives uh, right away, right away. Uh, so those, you know, those, those kind of software uh, solutions are out there. We just now need to make use of them uh, and apply them to government procurement and, you know, uh, the U.S. supply chain in a way that's going to make a much bigger difference. Well, it'll be interesting to see how the federal government responds to that because in many cases at the federal level, their software systems are monolith and uh, still some of them are probably uh, chisel and stone. Uh, they, they, they have a hard time keeping up because they're, they're managing such a massive bureaucracy that it is very difficult to implant software and get it working right. As the Navy experienced well, in know, their, yeah, yeah the Navy experienced in their the, purchasing software. Go ahead, go ahead, Rosemary. Yeah, I was just going to say this most recent cyber attack came in through um, a a vendor software. Um, you know, it was not not a government built legacy system, but it was uh, introduced through um, a, a, a commercial piece of software. And so, you know, there's a lot to solve there, right? I mean, we can't just let, we just can't let this happen again, right? We we need to secure our systems so that we don't have outside vendors introducing uh, cyber cyber attacks and also strengthen our, our legacy system. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, sometimes when I get involved in the government system and I'm trying to, find something or register something or I'm just holy cow the the <laughs> it, it's just awful you know I have to like shore myself up to get onto a, a government system like the the uh, acquisition system the SAM system in Washington for federal acquisitions is a good example where it's really difficult you know and and these are legacy systems that were built 20, 30 years ago, and that's what it feels like, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I mean, but, there's a long know, way to go. There's just so many things. There's so many things that need to be worked on. Um, and, you know, I hope that the Biden administration puts an infrastructure in place that is uh, is really going to work on some of these big problems. There are two points that I'd like to make, and they're quick. One is, if I'm not mistaken, the company that you were referring to, the software company, was a company called Solar Wind. That is a uh, is that correct? Uh, I, I wasn't 100 percent sure. And they yeah. uh, allow, they allowed basically malware from uh, from Russia to get installed in their programs. 
uh, now, you know, if they perhaps had uh, complied with NIST 800-171, that might not have happened. The, the, the problem is that the, the Russians, assuming that it was the Russians, they really were brilliant in what they did by not going into uh, uh, not going into the um, overall internet, but they found us. They found a um, organization that they could just dump malware. And if I'm not mistaken, Solar Wind had something like eighteen thousand clients. So um, the problem I think exists, and I came up with a I came up with a solution, maybe. And that solution is that for government um, security's sake, that there should be a second internet, which the first one was for the government. Well, now it's wide open for anybody who has a, a couple of teenage kids that can hack into anything, uh, that maybe we need to create a secondary um, uh, internet uh, that has all kinds of different controls it would be used for security purposes and start limiting access to only those people, organizations, companies that really need to, that are doing government work, for example. So that's my solution. Well, I think it's a great one. I'm, I'm not a cybersecurity expert, so I, I don't know how to comment on that, but it sounds reasonable to me um, to make, sure. a, you know, some systems completely secure and independent and others, um, you know, kind of walled off from that independence. That, so, that's yeah, my I mean, thought. That sounds, yeah, that sounds like a great solution. Well, well I, I, it away. I just gave it away to tens of thousands of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rosemary, as we wrap up this segment on national policy, anything else you would like to share with our listeners on this subject? Yeah, I think um, just just to close that you know I'm I'm very hopeful um, that we we start to take back control of of some of these big issues and thoughtfully work on solutions. So. Um, you know, not just handing out contracts to to companies or our friends or whatever, but we really thoughtfully work on solutions that are going to benefit America, even if it means, um, you know, that, that we're picking some industries to support. Um, that's, you know, industrial policy. I, I Actually, I was very surprised when I found out we didn't have any industrial policy. <laughs> I mean, that surprised me. I've been working in manufacturing 30 years. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's important now that we do it so that we protect the American people from, um, you know, future horrendous issues, um, you know, shortages and things for that, that we need to focus on that are going to help us sustain our lifestyles going forward. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I don't uh I'm a big proponent of pharmaceutical manufacturing coming back to the US. I want to know when I'm taking a treatment that my doctor prescribes that it's not a counterfeit treatment that was leaked into the system from whatever country. I don't care who they are that made the counterfeit. I don't want it. So Yeah, I mean that's really true too. I mean 
counterfeits are a huge part of that, but in, in pharmaceuticals, as you mentioned, for example, we also want the building blocks back here. I mean, we want to develop our own pharmaceuticals. We won't, don't want to depend on some other country, um, you know, th that may say, well, we need the stock for ourselves now. We're not giving America any, you know. <laughs> You're not treating us very well, like China, for example. You're not treating us very well, so we're not going to sell you anything, right? And the same is true with rare earth elements. Um, you know, China controls 95% of the market, and rare earth elements are in everything, magnets and electronics and wiring and, you know, everything. And we are very vulnerable in that regard. I mean, if China gets pissed off and says, you know, we're not going to sell anything to you, we're not going to sell these to you, we're in a bad problem <laughs> we're in bad situation so you know meanwhile, these are the kind of things meanwhile moderna sent 25 million doses to europe uh this week so we are sharing we're trying to buy our way back into the good graces of our friends and allies but it, it seems as though that they better make more uh, uh, vaccines quicker. Uh, otherwise, we're in real serious problems. Yeah. I'm waiting for mine. I think I'm in the next group. So <laughs> I'm, I'm in my, you know, I'm in my 60s. So I'm, I'm hoping that I get the, I get the vaccine, vaccine pretty soon. Um, yeah, I, you know, this is, this is a great example of how we compete on the world stage, right? So right. do we? protect Americans or do we help the rest of the world? So the, these are these are the questions of our age. That's what policy is all about. Well, Rosemary, we appreciate you joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio to discuss this important topic on national policy. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. It's my pleasure. And you have a good holiday. Stay safe. Keep your head low while they're firing. Okay. Okay. And we'll we'll be All talking right. to you uh, next year. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So that's uh, our show for uh, today. Uh, we always enjoy having uh, Rosemary Coates uh, with us, and she has her own show uh, on our Jacket Media Co. Comp uh, organization called Wham. Women and Manufacturing and Business. You may have to add a B to that, but it's hard to say when, but. So uh, tune in to our other shows. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Cliff uh, Waldman in uh, Manufacturing Matters. We've got um, Where's Willie, uh, who uh, travels the country and uh, also is a uh, high-level C-suite individual at uh, uh, Heartland RV. Uh, we have uh, Wham, which we already mentioned, and we have Hazard Girls, and that's with Emily Solaby, who um, talks about women in unusual fields. So that's... Uh, that's an interesting show to be uh, listening to. So uh, I wish everybody uh, good holidays. Uh, stay safe. Keep your head low while they're still firing. 
and uh, we will speak to you uh, at our next series of shows. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.